Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Hey, so this episode's a little bit of a departure from our normal content. I asked a former Northern California police officer to talk about his experience with a career-ending injury in their workers' comp system. I then asked Laura Rosenthal, a workers' comp attorney in my area, to join the conversation to give us some tips on things we can do before, during, and after our injury to limit some of the damages that can be done. So I hope you find this content valuable. There's some notes uh, at the end for further information if you find yourself injured or you want to learn more. Uh, Nick and Laura, thanks for being on the show. I've asked uh, Nick and Laura to come and talk a little bit about workers' comp because I think our profession has a lot of the same similar problems throughout the state. And uh, although this is the uh, California Association of Tactical Officers in California, a lot of these things apply throughout the nation. So I've asked Nick to tell his story. He's a former uh, police officer in Northern California and uh, found himself thrust into the workers' comp world after a significant injury. And uh, after that, it's a series of tragedies that uh, took place, uh, mostly from the mishandling of his case. So I asked him to kind of tell his story. Nick's a great guy, a friend of Cato. He's helping us a lot with our uh, new website that everyone's frustrated with. Nick's building us a new one so that uh, we won't have those problems anymore. And uh, Laura is a practicing uh, attorney who deals with workers' comp, and her heart uh, really is for first responders. So she focuses most of her practice on uh, police officers and uh, firemen. And so I've asked her to share some of her experiences too. But we're going to start with Nick because I, I want to hear. I think your story is important. I'd like to to uh, have you tell it. Uh, I th- I know when I heard it the first time, uh, I identified with some of the the culture issues that you dealt with. And then as you continued to give me more details, I was astounded that these things are still happening today, but they are. So, so tell us your story, my friend. Okay. So I started my police career in 2013, um, got picked up with, uh, from a Northern California agency. And honestly, I absolutely loved it. It was my favorite job by far I've ever had. Um, enjoyed it immensely, um, was a hard worker, had a lot of, you know, good stats and worked hard. I, I think I say that because I wasn't one of those guys who was, you know, looking for a way out. I was, uh, when my injury happened, um, I was a little over, I guess, almost four years into my career and honestly wanted to be there. Um, loved it. So it was a just like any other day, we got a, a call of a drunk driver who was running around town beating people up. And so we found the vehicle, got in a pursuit uh, with the vehicle. Um, and when we got the car stopped, the guy, the gentleman that was in the car was not uh, non-compliant. And so I went to the vehicle and Honestly, it wasn't a, a big deal, just a, another day on the job. But when I pulled him out of the car, um, I, I grabbed him and twisted. And when I turned, um, my kneecap came off of my leg, um, like completely dislocated. And we hit the ground. Um, and when I hit the ground, it popped back in place. Thank God. Um, but, you know, 
he hit me a couple times. I hit him a couple times, got him into custody, asked him if he was going to give a blood sample. Um, and he's like, you know, F you, no way. So I, great. So I told my uh, sergeant who had shown up to the scene that I was going to go to the police department, write a search warrant for his blood while the other officer uh, took him down to uh, the jail, jumped in my car, spun around to head back, uh, head back to the station and my knee started killing me. So um, knew something was wrong, but uh, finished up the search warrant hobbled back to the jail, took the, the guy's blood and uh, went back to the PD. And my friend saw me limping and he's like, hey man, you're, uh, <laughs> you're messed up. I'm like, yeah, I'm messed up. And so he, uh, he's like, why don't you, you know, go tell, go tell the sergeant. And it was, it was, uh, gosh, it was two hours after we were supposed to get off. And I was like, hey man, I'll take care of it tomorrow. You know, my wife is nine months pregnant and she is, you know, struggling right now. So I went, changed out, came downstairs and my sergeant cornered me and said, hey, you're, you're, your knees messed up. I'm like, yeah. So he's like, let's, let's do this. So I filled out the paperwork, went home and uh, at four o'clock the next morning, my second daughter was born. So I was, you know, <laughs> hobbling around the hospital uh, with my knee all jacked up um, and went to see the doctor uh, less than a week after my injury and it was diagnosed. This was a, a, a general workers comp doctor. She diagnosed it as a knee sprain. Um, nothing more. I didn't get x-rays. I didn't get uh, CT scans, MRIs, nothing. It was just a knee sprain. And the issue was, is my kneecap was so loose and just damaged that I could take my thumb and flip my kneecap off of my knee like like at any time. It was completely sloppy. My knee was was loose. Walking was scary. It felt like it was going to dislocate on me, but it was just a, just a knee sprain. And I was given some ibuprofen to get the swelling out and I was told to go to physical therapy. And I was put on light duty at the police department. Um, I was, for the first two weeks, I was on a, a maternity leave uh, for my the birth of my daughter. But um, I returned to work and I was assigned to what they call the healing room or the healing chair, where I was put in the property room of the police department to book evidence in and, you know, go through old cases and clear out old evidence that need, need to be there. All right, hold on. It was called the healing chair. Did it have a label? Yeah. I mean, no, it didn't have a label, but that's just what they called it in the department because <laughs> people who were injured would magically not be injured anymore after a short time in the chair. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, cops were usually, you know, type A or at least somewhat type A. And we like to be around people. We're used to driving around in cars, going to calls, you know, moving and shaking. And when you put, a, when you put a cop in a chair in the basement of a building locked behind a door, uh, you tend to, you tend to get better, even if you're not better. So yeah, the healing chair. Um, so I, uh, I was down there doing my physical therapy. My knee was not getting better. It was sore, swollen, really sloppy. Um, going to physical therapy, uh, once or twice a week and doing basic exercises like, uh, you know, stepping up on a wooden block or doing, you know, a leg press with, you know, a, a couple of pounds, not even very much, uh, riding a, an exercise bike. 
And it was basically physical therapy. Like I was in the same room as people who had received knee replacements or hip replacements, you know, uh, everybody was over the age of probably 60, maybe even 70. And then there's me. So after doing this for gosh, a couple months, I, uh, I, I told the doctor, I was like, Hey, you know what? I, I feel like a, I at least have a meniscus tear. Like my knee is really uncomfortable. It really hurts. It's not getting better even with fit with physical therapy and my kneecap is sloppy. Um, and I had years before I had torn my meniscus in my right knee and I had the same kind of catch that I had in there. And so it, it felt very much the same. So I'm like, hey, you know what? Like, I really, I really feel like there's more going on here than just a knee sprain. Like, this is, I'm not okay. I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but uh, I definitely was not receiving any help. So after, gosh, I want to say close to two months, they finally allowed me to get an MRI. And every time I asked for it, they said, you know, that's the next level of care. And we don't do that. Um, not until we're sure. So I went and got an MRI. And I had a, a mild meniscus tear and I was sent to go see a surgeon. So I went to the surgeon, he looked at my MRI and he felt my kneecap and he goes, oh geez, your, your knee is, is destroyed. You know, like you, you have damage on the inside, you have damage on uh, the connecting tissues. It looks like your patellar tendon is stretched out. You're, you're, this is not gonna get better with physical therapy. There's, there's, there's no way. Like, he wiggled my kneecap and could see the, how loose it was um, and was like, this isn't going to get better. So he requested uh, surgery to take, a, basically, they just take a, a cadaver tendon and attach it to your kneecap and then screw it into your uh, tibia to hold your kneecap in place. So he requested the surgery, sent it back to the workers' comp primary care physician. She sent it up the chain um, and it was denied. And the reason they said it was denied is a dislocated or, you know, kneecap is a fairly common injury and it gets better with physical therapy. So they sent me back to, to physical therapy and denied my surgery. And I was continuing to work in the property room, uh, clearing out old evidence and, you know, work in that healing chair. So I was there for, I don't know, uh, another month, maybe still doing physical therapy. I called the surgeon. I told him, I said, Hey, I was denied surgery. They said, this is going to get better. And he's like, this isn't going to get better. He said it, it on paper, it may say that it's a dislocated kneecap, but this is an injury that's diagnosed, you know, in, in a room. Like, in other words, you have to physically see your kneecap and see how damaged it is. And he's like, I was like, well, can you talk to the insurance company? He's like, well, yeah, they never talked to me. I'd be happy to talk to them. So I requested the surgery again. I had my primary workers comp doctor push it through again to talk to the surgeon to see that I'm, I'm not okay. And they denied the surgery a second time. So at about month four of being in the property room, still unable to walk, still in a lot of pain. Um, honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't, I have a, a daughter who was, I guess, three, probably four by this time um, and a newborn. And I couldn't carry them because I was scared my kneecap was going to, like my knee was going to crumble. Like it was, it was so loose and so sloppy that I, I couldn't carry them. I couldn't play with them. So my personal life is on pause. My career is on pause and I'm stuck in the property room. So I'm going down the stairs one day um, at the PD to go back to the property room. 
and walking down the stairs to the basement, my kneecap dislocates and I fall down the stairs. And after that, my knee hurt more. It was obviously more damaged than it was prior to that. Shocking. Right. And I, I was in uh, quite a bit more pain and I filed a second workers comp incident. Um, because they were separate because the first one was obviously just physical therapy. I'd get better. This one is a whole new incident because I'm at work and I get injured again. Go back to the doctor. She's like, your knees jacked up. It's swollen. At this point, I'm eating ibuprofen, 800 ibuprofens, like Skittles, trying to keep the swelling and the pain down. Um, they had to switch me to a more, uh, like a gentler, uh, in, in uh, anti or pain medicine and, and uh, anti-inflammatory because the ibuprofen was eating my stomach up. So then I had, you know, stomach issues, went back to the surgeon. He agreed that my knee was, was damaged. And on the third time that I submitted my work comp request for surgery, they approved it. And so they had a, a, a surgery date of, I think, July, 15th or something like that. So I got injured December 23rd. And in July, I finally got a sur my surgery date. And I was frustrated. I was vocally frustrated around the police department. So the uh, city manager and the chief called me into a meeting. And the chief was definitely um, backing me up on at least in this meeting. But when I talked to the city manager, I said, you know what? My surgery was denied multiple times. I have been in pain for months. I have been unable to continue my career. And on top of that, I've been working in the property room. It'll, it'll be six months basically before, before I actually get surgery. And the city manager told me that his job was to be a good steward of the city's finances and paying for my surgery was not being a good steward because somebody said that I could just rehab it. And so even the city manager was like, yeah, you're not worth it, basically, you know, that, that, that I have to save money. And even if you're in pain for six months, even if you can't walk, even if you can't play with your kids, even if you can't work, I need to be careful about how I'm spending the money. And, and so we denied your surgery. So fast forward to surgery, I get surgery uh, successfully, and I enter the rehab portion of this. And I had the same physical therapist that I had before. It was bend your knee. It was step up on this four inch wooden block. It was ride the exercise bike for 10 minutes. It was do a leg press with, you know, like a sitting leg press with 10 pounds. And it was basically like a <laughs> rehab for geriatrics, right? Like for people who are trying to just get back to day-to-day -day life, you know, who have had knee surgeries or hip surgeries. It was not for someone who needed to be back at the level that you need to be for a cop. So I did it. I worked out when I could, or I mean, when I, I went to physical therapy, then I worked out on my own um, and did more and got to the place where I was good enough to walk and they put me back in the property room, back to the healing chair to work in the basement more doing the same thing 
So I did that for a little bit and then I called my surgeon and I said, hey, if I go back to work, other than pain, is this going to cause any damage? And he said, no, you can't, you can't damage it now. Once the, once the, you know, the bone around the screws that they put in calcifies and everything, like you're, you're not going to damage your knee. It's just pain tolerance. So I told my PD, I'm going back to work. Like, I just want to, I'll, I'll be a cop. I'll deal with the pain. So I went back to work. Um, I worked, this was December. So January is when I went back to work. So I full more than 12 months after my initial injury, I went back to work and I worked until I believe March and my knee uh, was not doing well. I was in a lot of pain. The amount of soft tissue damage that either the first or the second injury caused my my knee was riding kind of just bone on bone and there wasn't a lot there to support it and in march i got i went into the doctor right actually that's not true in march i got in a, a fight with a homeless man who pulled a, pulled a knife on me and we fought rolled around and when i was done with that fight my knee hurt so bad that i i could barely walk so i went that was on a sunday and went in on Tuesday, the doctor looked at my knee and she said, you are, your injury is, you know, stable and it's not going to get any better. And she wrote me permanently dis disabled on that day. So I sent it back to my PD and I said, Hey, what do you want to do with this? And they said, well, stay at home for right now. So <laughs> I stayed at home, I guess a couple of weeks later, HR called me and said, Hey, can you come in? And I said, yeah. So I showed up at the police department. Uh, walked into HR and they said, can you fill out this paperwork? And I said, sure. And I got to a, a line and it said retirement date. And I said, my retirement date. And they go, oh, the paperwork came through two days ago. So you were retired two days ago. And I said, yeah, I, I was. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, there's no like, we're talking about this or like, that's it. And they're like, yeah, I mean, we, you can honestly put down whatever day you want but it was effective two days ago. So it doesn't really matter what you put on that thing. It was two days ago. So I go, wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm retired. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, somebody should have, could have told me that that's it. Like I'm done. Like this is the meeting where I'm, I'm like, do I need to go clean out my locker? Like do, does my key card for the PD work? And they're like, well, we'll get to that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I fill out some paperwork and I go back to the police department and I'm like, talking to people and I'm like, Hey, I, I'm done. Like, that's it. Like uh, it's over. So the chief comes downstairs and he's like, Nick, I had no idea. I am so sorry. They didn't tell me this was going to happen. Just go home. We'll figure out the rest later. Don't worry about it. So I call my POA rep and I tell him what happened. And we have a meeting with HR the next day. So I go back in and I'm like, this is crap. Like not even like a nothing like that just show up one day and everything is is done and the hr person said well we told the chief we sent him an email and he responded to it so he knew about it and so the, even the chief just lied to me about the whole thing so the next day or whatever i came in cleared out my locker i never got to retire with my with my handgun um, i never got even so much as a facebook post about my career and or retirement um, i was just gone like people were texting me like hey man how are you and i was like i'm retired they're like you what like that nobody even knew about it and not that i wanted to go out with fanfare or anything like that but like uh, at least a little respect right like i i literally <laughs> gave up how i'm gonna live my life for the rest of my life my knees permanently damaged and just just gone
yeah, so I, 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 yeah, never got, never got any of the normal things that happen when you retire. And uh, that was it. Afterwards, um, I found out that the person who worked for the insurance company who looked at my surgery request and denied it um, had multiple malpractice, medical malpractice cases against him for doing faulty or <laughs> wrong knee surgeries and uh, couldn't operate as a physician. So the insurance company hired him to deny surgeries or be the expert on whether I needed a surgery or not. And he was the person who actually said, you don't need surgery. So anyway, that's kind of the, I guess it wasn't very quick, but that's, that's the basics to my story. No, I, I appreciate you sharing it and you, you covered it lightly, but let's not, let's not discount the emotional effects that it has when you spend, you know, we joke around about the people we know in our profession that try to get out of work and try to retire and may not have legitimate injuries, but there's a large percentage of hardworking folks that find themselves in this position and it can be devastating and depressing because you're stuck alone, isolated at home. And, uh, we know one thing about our profession and we, we tend to hurt our own wounded a lot and assume the worst in the people we work with sometimes. And I'm sure you struggled with being isolated and it can lead to, you know, you lost your whole profession and I'm sure it took a while to get, to get your, uh, to get your sunshine back, I guess. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's absolutely true. And, uh, I mean, my wife is a, at the time was a stay at home mom and we had one source of income and people talk about re retiring on medical, getting 50% tax free for your, the rest of your life, which sounds great unless that's your only stream of income. Right. And, and sounds like a lot of money, except, I mean, you know, Marcus, you're a cop, like we live on overtime, right? Like you, <laughs> there isn't a week go by almost that you don't have court or something that you're coming in working extra. And so it's 50% of your base pay, which is a lot less than 50% of what you actually make. And if, if you get retired as a cop, I mean, I'm a, or I was a drug recognition expert, right? I was, uh, uh, a crime scene specialist. So I took all of the, how to process crime scenes. How do you use that outside of a law enforcement? I mean, other than my work ethic and uh, I'm pretty good at shooting a gun. Um, I know, I, I know California penal code fairly well. Like how does that transfer into the private sector? Uh, you know, what do you use the skills that you learn as a cop as when you can't do anything physical, like I can't even be a security guard. Um, and so transferable skills are very minimum. And again, uh, it, it took a huge toll on me. I mean, our, our income got cut by way more than 50%. And I struggled to find a career that could pay the bills and make up the difference. Uh, I basically went from a master of my trade to literally being an intern, right? I had to start at the very bottom and work my way back through stuff because transferring into the, from having a skill set that is police to anything else is, is not pretty. It's not easy. 
Yeah, it can be difficult uh, depending upon where you're at in your career and, and what's available. So thanks for sharing that, bud. I know you've told that story lots of times, and I'm sure every time you tell it, it gets a little easier. But it's also, uh, you know, I can identify with the stress, you know, of all of those things. Laura, are you angry yet? Uh, you know what? I've listened to your story, Nick, and I all the way through, I'm listening and going, oh, man, I could have stepped in there. Oh, I could have stepped in there. Um, yeah, it's, I know that's a tough thing to hear too. And, um, it's unfortunate that a lot of that, as it was unfolding, you know, the denials of surgery are far too common and it would be the most um, obvious thing to have happened for you. Um, we often have, I've gone lobbied before the California legislator her about the denials of treatment, particularly for first responders. And the issue is the longer you have an officer out with denial of treatment, the harder it is to get them back to work again. And it's hard to train a police officer. It's hard to train a firefighter. You know, they put a lot of money and time into y'all. And then to have you out and have that treatment denied, it's really, it, it just makes no sense at all, at all, you, you know? Yeah. And, and going through it, looking back, I, I completely agree with you. I should have called you for help. <laughs> I, I genuinely, and maybe it was, I was, naive or whatever, but I genuinely believed that the police department would do the best thing for me. I genuinely believed that they had my back. And I mean, why, why wouldn't they? I was a good cop. I worked hard. I showed up every time. I worked overtime. I worked special assignments. I had just gotten assigned to the motor unit um, as a specialty. Like, I mean, I, I wasn't the guy who was, you know, sloughing off and working graveyards and sleeping in the, in the back lot. I was the guy who worked really, really hard to do a good job. So why wouldn't they want me there? Why wouldn't they have my absolute best, uh, you know, in mind? And, and in the workers' comp world, I, that's not true. No, it's not, unfortunately. And I think it's because we have, you know, that, that there's one part of it is you have the department. And then even though um, government organizations like police departments are self-insured, they also have what's called a third-party administrator, which is the claims adjuster. And then we have a whole system called how you got denied something called utilization review, which means that every time there's a request for treatment, it goes up this chain, it actually goes to a doctor like the one you were talking about, who simply reviews the paper who's never evaluated you or seen you. And just based on that piece of paper can say no, you don't need that surgery or not. So it gets taken out of the hands of actual treating doctor and just goes up through this bureaucratic ladder. So that's really unfortunate because I would think that, um, particularly for first responders, we would have a different system. Um, but yeah, and I, I don't, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you can go through that system alone. You should be able to, but with that additional layer of this whole utilization review and medical review, it just, it's become way more convoluted and complex than it has to be. I think the most common theme I hear when people come to my office or come talk to me is, uh, is when the treatment starts getting denied because it is really, that's when people stay out of work much longer than they need to. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Laura. So let's talk a little bit about some of the commonalities you've seen in your uh, experience that, uh, mm -hmm. and we, we wanted to tell Nick's story because we all know someone that's been through this and it's unfortunate that it continues to happen, right? Right, right. And we, we have some extremes. We have guys like Nick and then we have... Uh, and everybody does this. You get hurt and you're like, oh, this, is this a career ender? 
is this my career ending injury or not? And you worry about, you know, Hey, is this until we go to the, we go to the hospital for minor stuff. Cause we're like, Oh man, I hope this doesn't get worse because we're all paranoid about being misdiagnosed or, or not treated properly. So can you talk a little bit in your experience, what you think, uh, you know, prior to being injured, what are, what are some common misconceptions or mistakes that uh, law enforcement in particular or first responders make that if they could set themselves up for success, you'd recommend them do some things different? Well, one thing I would suggest for, for all cops and firefighters is um, just doing a physical, going and getting a physical done um, every, at least every other year, getting your blood checked. Um, I know this sounds really horrible, but cancer is a presumption and there's a lot of other presumptions out there. And if you can kind of keep on top of your own health at all times, that's a really good thing to do. I've had officers come in who've told me they haven't gone to doctor in five or 10 years. And then when something finally does happen, they find a whole bunch of other underlying conditions. So really just taking care of yourself. It seems obvious, but a lot of people don't do it. So that's one. Um, the other thing is to keep track of your own medical records. Like, know what's going on with your medical records and your own medical treatments. Um, it's amazing to me that we will sit through a deposition and people will not know who their doctor is or they won't know what's happened in their past, their own medical treatment and their own medical care. Um, so you all are really good at taking care of other people, but it's important to take care of yourself. And you and I have talked about this a little bit, and uh, I've probably there's a much more articulate way to say this, but uh, you've never... Uh, divulged any of your clients to me and I don't need to know who they are. Probably some of them are my friends. And uh, I consider you one of my good friends, but I hope never to be one of your clients. So uh, we have that going for us. But there's a, uh, yeah, likewise, right? So, but we, we're attracted to a profession that we have to make crisis decisions, but we also have a very regimented schedule and uniform and a lot of logistical issues are taken care of. Unlike say Nick's current private sector job where he's an entrepreneur, he's responsible for taking care of himself and all the logistics and everything. So because of that, I think it attracts a certain level of, uh, well, I don't know someone else to care of that for me. And I think you see that a lot because we're used to someone telling us where to go, where to show up, what gear to bring, and then we execute the mission. And uh, when it comes down to taking care of ourselves and keeping track and having records and knowing when and where things happened, we're usually pretty horrible. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think um, when thing like when I was listening to Nick's story and he's talking about you know he got his injury done, his his knee was hurt, and then he continued on with going and getting the search warrant and going back to the police department and, you know, have to be convinced to report his injury. That's the number one thing that I think with all injuries that it's really important to report it when it occurs and to report it thoroughly because the tendency is to think, oh, this is not that bad. Just rub some dirt on it. And I'll keep going, particularly with law enforcement. And it's really important to report it at the time as, or as soon as you can and to give an accurate account because that could come back to bite you later. And then also to get medical attention as soon as you can, because the tendency is if someone's not going to tell me to do it, I'm not going to do it, or I'll continue on the path that I'm going right now. But um, medical attention is crucial, and documenting that medical attention is, is really important. Um, and, you know, y'all are really good at writing reports and keeping track. That's something that's equally important to do when you get injured, keeping track and keeping track of your where you're going and who you're seeing, because that becomes crucial later on. 
Yes, and to be a, an advocate for yourself. Don't just wait for your doctor's office to call or your work right. workers' comp insurer to call. Right. Actually, go out there and be a be a polite professional thorn in their side to get your appointments in a timely manner. That kind of thing. Right, right. And the one thing that um, I think is a common misconception also is is it is okay to go ahead and you can talk to an attorney early on. We don't cost anything. I think that's a common misconception about work comp lawyers is uh, we don't take money from you. <laughs> and there's, you can get a, a consultation. You can come in and talk to me or if you didn't have any questions or go talk to your POA rep if you're not sure about something that's going on. You know, most of the time they, they tend to know or they can give you some information that you need to know about it or, or jump on the Department of Industrial Relations website to find out if you need information. Another thing I think is a, is a, that people don't know is if your treatment gets denied, you can go get that same treatment from your own doctor because once it's denied through workers compensation then you can, it's a fair game for you to go to your private doctor and get it taken care of i didn't know that that's actually a good tip right right um i know some doctors will still hesitate to do it if it's considered a work comp injury just take in that denial paperwork and show it to them say hey workers comp isn't going to pay for it they're denying it but that's typically what we advise our clients to do um and i think the other thing also to bear in mind is that um a claims adjuster, sort of like what Nick was saying about the the, uh, the city manager, they're more concerned about money. They want to, you know, cover their their they're basically they're like any other insurance company, right? They're covering the extent of payment they have to pay out. So they're they're they don't really have your back at that point. They want to make sure they're going to pay what they have to pay and no more. So physical therapy is cheap. Surgery is expensive. So they're going to try and you know minimize the amount of of payments they have to make out. I mean, you know, if it was you and you're trying to figure out well, how, how much I have to pay here, you're going to pay only what you have to pay. So at that point, you become more of a liability. Yeah, it, it is. It's the mechanics, right? It's the business end of this. And Nick, Nick, you kind of brought that up where you were like, hey, I'm a good employee. And if you, you know, I have another 15, 20 years to go or more. And if you invest in me, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the. I'm a good investment, right? I've already demonstrated that. But when they when they do the math, they uh, they change their mind. Right. And the other thing, Nick, I'm curious, were you on 4850 at the time they brought you in and retired you out? Um, I was. So I was on 4850 back on full duty, mm -hmm. and then they put me back on 4850 when um, mm -hmm. when I received the, you know, what is it, st permanent mm -hmm. final or permanent stationary? Permanent stationary. stationary yeah. So. Okay, so technically, even if you're permanent and stationary, you still should be getting 4850 pay. And when you're on 4850, there's actually a, a you're, they're not supposed to, they can't force you to retire. I don't think that's well known. So they're not. It's again, I don't think you're you were definitely not treated very well for sure. Yeah. But at that point, they can't bring you in and say you're retired. Yeah. It's actually in the in the it's actually in the code. See and and. So 4850, by the way, 4850 is it's labor code section 4850, which basically applies to law enforcement, certain law enforcement officers. It means you get paid your full pay while you're out on a work injury. And part of that labor code section also says that you can't be brought in while you're on that pay and told you have to retire. There has to be an interactive process. You know, they, they can't just say, okay, we're going to stop paying you now and you're going to retire you out. I was not given the option. Like I said, when I came in, they said you were retired as of two days ago and you can put any any date you want to on there, but it's effective two days ago. Um, yeah. 
which uh, obviously is quite shocking. Blindsiding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, and I'm taking this healing chair with me too. Bye. Yeah, that's mine. I <laughs> <that>. <laughs> he went ahead. He had to go say goodbye to the healing chair. Yeah. I I'm miss like, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely uh, you, questioned its power. I was, I was expecting more. Yeah. It. <laughs> it might. Well, Nick, you don't know this, but they don't call it the healing chair anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just the chair. It's, it's just the chair. <laughs> it's Nick's old chair. So, um, you you both brought up a great point, and it's something that we talk about uh, at my agency, at least, and and our union's doing a much better job than maybe it did ten years ago. Um, is we need to educate our folks. Our folks need to know you know, what to do and be able to trust who they talk to, whether they go to peer support, the union, whatever they go to say, Hey, look, this is what's going on with me. And I feel like, uh, I'm getting a raw deal here. And I'm oh, sorry. I was gonna point out I'm, too the tendency I, I find too. And I always joke about this with my, with my law enforcement officers. I'm like, y'all are like a bunch of lemmings. When one, one cop goes somewhere, all the other cops go somewhere. Y'all talk amongst yourselves and then decide, okay, well, that's what work comp is instead of, saying, well, maybe we should go ask somebody who, <laughs> who actually knows what workers' comp is because every case is a little bit different. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick, you had a good comment about that. Yeah, I, and I think that, honestly, uh, the, my command staff really were supportive. Um, they did a great job of just, like, being there for me and listening. Um, I don't know that they understood everything that was going on or had a really – a uh, strong grasp of the work comp system and what I was going through. And looking back, I think, uh, again, uh, I'm sure that there was no ill will or intention. And I, I really have nothing bad to say about, about that other than if you are command staff, you need to know this inside and out if you want to take care of your, your guys and girls, right? Like that's important. I think that, that having a really good grasp because I mean, in, and Marcus, you know, this in, in police work, you just look to the, the command staff, right? Like there's a, there's a way to do it. You have to take it up the chain, um, all of that. And, and the more that they can know about that, the, the better off. Um, I know for us, after what happened to me happened that the POA got together and, every not every but most of the officers designated their own position for work comp and one that was more friendly um because you know i i guess i i became the the cautionary tale and and um <laughs> at least changed some of the culture there uh with my story um yeah could you uh so let's talk about that real quick laura just uh if you have an opportunity yeah. you can pre-designate yeah, versus what the city or yeah. county uh, contracts yeah, out for your OC Health. Right. You can, there's a few, um, there's a few things around that, but yes, you can pre-designate your own physician. There's a certain time frame within which you can do that. You have to be careful and check on, I, I can't give you the exact time frame right now, but it has to be somebody who is, well, will take workers' compensation. And then you, you there's a pre-designation form um, that you fill out and you provide it to the city and to that, so that, that they know the minute you get injured, you go to that doctor instead of their typical like Kaiser Concentra, which is an occupational health clinic. Um, there are most self-insureds don't have what's called a medical provider network, which means you have to select one of their doctors. 
So that gives you a little bit of leeway. So if you, um, you know, that's one too where you can kind of ask around and find out if somebody has a good doctor that they like or prefer or who has been treating. There are certain doctors who do specialize in treating law enforcement. And those are good ones to pre-designate if you have the opportunity to do so. I, th I can check and figure out the time frames on that one, but that is a really good point. Well, Nick. down in a, in uh, I, I only know this from my own personal agency, so maybe a little different for everybody else. But you, the doctor you designate has to have some link to treating people that are injured. Like you can't know if uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm a huge fan of chiropractors. I go to one regularly. But you can't designate your chiropractor as your main physician. No. And so there, there are no. some caveats to those regulations. But if you do that and you can pre-designate, uh, my experience has been highly, highly encourage you to do so because the, bureau the bureaucracy is streamlined with someone who has committed to your treatment, not just the contract they have with the insurer. And the first 30 days of your injury, if you have not pre-designated, you have to go to the doctor that, that your employer has selected. So you're going to end up with a Kaiser or a Concentra, you know, doctor. And they are an occupational health clinic, and they are purely there to sort of like do the, the, you know, the basics and then try to get you back to work again. However, after 30 days, you can select your own doctor. And I don't think a lot of people do that. They continue to stick around with that same doctor, thinking that's who they're stuck with, and you're not. So 30 days after your injury and after beginning treatment, you can go pick your own doctor. Yeah, great, great point. 30 days. And 30 days isn't very long. Uh, for us in NorCal, mm -hmm. it'll take us 30 days just to get to see the doctor often. Um, right. We may we exactly. go 14 days before we can even get our initial appointment half the time. So you're out of work a Correct. long time before Correct. you make any progress at all. Right. Uh, that being said, Laura, what are... What are some other tips you have for uh, folks listening that things they can do now, um, like the pre-designation, things they could do during their injury to be more proactive about their care? You mentioned uh, keeping track of your records. And uh, obviously right. you said uh, contact an attorney early. And I, I, yeah. I've done yeah. that several times uh, when I was injured. And, mm -hmm. and I wasn't even being mm -hmm. mistreated. I just felt like it was a significant enough of an injury. I was worried about... Uh, my treatment to make sure I got good treatment. And I hired an attorney to help me navigate that. And, and it, and it worked right. out, you know, it worked out well. I went back to work. Everything's okay. But you, there's a lot of, there's a lot so, of caveats in the law that you need to navigate. And there's also, I think what happens is a lot of times you, the, I see a lot of cops have gone back to work. And then if, when they, by the time they come to me, a lot of times it is that, that last injury that has finally taken them out of work for good. And I'll go back through all their records and I'll realize, well, you had, you have like five other open claims and they didn't even realize that they had them still open and they could be going to get treatment or they had probably a right to go do, um, do a final closeout, get a permanent disability rating and get some money out of that claim. So now I'm like working up, you know, four or five other claims for them while I'm trying to wrap up this final one. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's helpful, but again, I don't mind having the work, it's fine, but they could have had some money coming in the door at that time too, to help them out. So, um, you know, if you have a claim and it's open, keep track of your treatment and then don't just assume once you're back at work, it's gone. You know, get back in touch with that claims adjuster and find out what you can do with that claim. That's why it's important to keep records and also keep track of that 
keep track of that particular workers' comp claim and keep together all the documents that are coming to you on that particular claim. Even if it doesn't seem that significant to you, down the road it could matter if you end up going to, um, to an attorney. Um, those little work status reports that you get, that you turn into your employer, that document what your work restrictions are, those become really important, particularly if you end up going out on a medical retirement. So I, um, I actually do help my clients with the, uh, with the medical retirements. I call it industrial disability retirement applications. So I will do those for my clients if it looks like we're headed that way. Uh, particularly if you're about, oh, I don't know, you're about probably six months into a 4850, you know, you pay or you've been out for at least six months to get closing in on a year, it's time to have that conversation about, you know what, let's talk about whether or not you're going to return to work. And you really should start thinking about that, particularly, as Nick mentioned, for police officers, you're used to having that money coming in the door. If you are the only one generating income or having money coming in the door, you need to start thinking about putting some money away. Because if you get to the end of that year of 4850, then you're going to start getting something called temporary disability pay, which is two-thirds of your average weekly wage. And I don't know a lot of police officers who can adjust to living on that that quickly. And then you're going to look at applying for stuff like long-term disability through PORAC. I don't know if you all are familiar with PORAC, the Police Officers Retirement Association. Yes. I can't remember the whole. Yep. Yeah, okay. So then you have to look at that because you're going to be have a, another year of temporary disability, and then you're going to be going into getting your long-term disability, and they put a lien on anything else you're applying for. So, I mean, there's ways to get money, but it's never going to be as much as you're making under your labor code 4850. So that's, those are things to start thinking about during the course of your injury. If it starts looking like you're going to be gone for a year, you're looking at probably retiring out. And that means before that, and I, I say this a lot, I don't know how many people actually do it, before that, consider stashing some money away because you're going to get to a point where things are going to look kind of desperate. You know, I actually had a couple of my cops who, who just did that because we saw it was coming up to that point and they started just throwing a little money away in a savings account and thinking about moving out of California because it's getting expensive here. That's the biggest tip I could give you right there. It's just, just know it's coming. Thank you. That you, uh, you bring up great points because we don't often plan well. We're used to have, we have a good retirement, right? So, <laughs> uh, we, right. we know how to plan for the retirement and throw in some deferred comp, maybe, uh, something for college mm -hmm. fund. And then, uh, we spend the rest mm -hmm. on, uh, Boats. Boats, <laughs> trucks. When you're brand new in Northern California, you get yourself a big truck. Right. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, maybe a divorce or two in there. Yeah. And uh, child support or alimony. Yeah, and next geez. thing you know, you're, uh, you're spending all your money. So that's, yeah, that's uh, definitely a professional right. hazard for all of us. And I think the other thing to think about in, in terms of um, coming to a workers' comp attorney is there's some other benefits that you could be getting that you may not be getting. You know, you want to make sure even if you come to, if you want to come talk to me early on, I'll look at, might, might look at you and go, hey, you know what, you're getting everything you need to get right now. Come back and talk to me if things start getting crappy, you know, maybe another two months in. Or you, you might be going back to work. Fine. Come talk to me in the next injury. You know, it's not always, I don't always have people coming in the door and I go, okay, let's sign you up. I'll, I've sent plenty of people away when things are going really well. But if, you know, when things happen like with Nick, if something's happening where you're getting a surgery denied and you feel like, this isn't, I'm not going to go back to work unless I have that surgery. Call up an attorney and talk to them. You know, you never know. You might have a, a different view on things. It's, it's um, 
I, I just, that was just heartbreaking, Nick, to hear that. I mean, I'm sure you were in so much pain and, um, I, I, I hear this story actually quite a bit <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, it's just, um, I mean, it's horrifying and you were just such a young cop at that point too. Yeah. Yeah. He's old they, now, but he know, was young when this happened to him. Yeah. yeah. You're old. <laughs> he's super old. He's super old well, now. Uh, yeah. I think that job, that job ages you fast. Well, we know? call that. <laughs> I mean, Marcus, you're, you're like, you're like what? Like, yeah. So there's birth years. years and then there's mileage, Laura. There's mileage. Mileage comes <laughs> in a variety of forms. So you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Nick, any, any thoughts uh, before we wrap it up here? Any, any thoughts for the folks listening and, and words of wisdom from somebody that, that, uh, you know, is still living with some pain and yeah. uh, has moved on successfully and has a great life and, uh, I'm coming out there to see you here next month and uh, see where you landed in yeah. the middle of COVID moving for the second time. But uh, yeah. any any advice to folks listening? I would say that no matter how well the, the actual police department, because I my police department, you know, for the most part, tried pretty hard for me. Um, remember that like through this, you're kind of up against the machine, right? Which is workers comp and everything that the, that entails. And I would have gone back if I could do it again, um, and gotten an attorney at first, but at the time I felt like, oh, they're going to take care of me and I don't need to get lawyers involved because then they're going to bring out their lawyers and it's just going to be, you know, a, a slug fest to try to get stuff done. Um, now that was misguided for sure. Uh, but at the time, that's what I, that's what I genuinely thought. And I think the, the best thing you can do is, is ask for help because, uh, you know, unless you're, you know, old, like you, Marcus, and you've done this, you know, 10 or 12 times or whatever, um, <laughs> um, you know, for me, this was my, like my first real work injury. Um, other than, I mean, you know, I, minor ones that didn't even really take me out or I had to go on leave for, um, but get an attorney, ask questions. Don't assume that the best is what workers comp is doing for you. It's probably the cheapest. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is, is their business and they're trying to save money and you're just a number and you're, you know, there's a dollar sign attached to you. And when that dollar sign tips the pendulum, you like you're gone. Um, yeah, yeah ask, it was ask a questions. Timeline. Yeah. Yep. Ask questions, get involved and assume that, that, you know, you're, you got to take care of yourself. Yeah. And, and I, I just add to that, get support, get support for your family. Um, that's super stressful on your partner. Um, not knowing what to do. Uh, I'm sure this doesn't apply to Nick, but you're probably not a great person to be around when you're stuck at home. You can't work. You're uh, in a lot of pain. You're having some financial stressors. Yeah, you're uh, watching. You're watching your career kind of crumble. And yeah, I'm sure you're great to be around. So no, get some I, help for your family. Yeah, God bless my wife. My gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's. I completely agree with that. I do a lot of conversations with uh, with family involved. You know, uh, like if, if, if I have a, a wife or a husband or you know spouses, partners. Um, it, it helps to have them involved in the process and understand what's going on too, because, you know, you can't have it relayed from one person to the other. It is, it is a difficult process to go through. Even if you have an advocate, it's really, it's hard, you know, um, and 
being injured and um, trying to battle the system alone is a double whammy. So that's why that's why also it's helpful to have an advocate to help you get through it. Um, I think that um, for the most part, like what you said, Nick, I think for the most part, your agency is going to want to get you back to work, but you are, again, you're dealing with the machine. Yeah. Yep, I agree with that. Yeah. Laura, before we go real quick, let's talk about percentages and then we'll, oh, okay. we'll close the this up. Okay, partial disability? Yeah, so you know, a lot of, there's a myth. Yeah. There's a myth out there and it depends on where you work, but uh, that you, you get a disability rating, right? And you can right. get, you get a series of these throughout your career based upon how mm -hmm. many times you're injured. Can you kind of right. talk about what that really means? Okay. So that's one of the, one of the benefits that you get through workers' compensation is permanent partial disability benefit. So where that means that when you get to that point where Nick men mentioned that he was found permanent and stationary. So but that means when you go to, usually it's through what we call a qualified medical evaluator, which is a state state trained doctor that you go to they do an evaluation of you and this means like every single body part gets evaluated that's been injured right and then they do uh, what's called a rating so they rate that body part based upon the american medical association guides ama guides and then they they basically assign a percentage to every body part that percentage that you see in that doctor's report is not the actual disability rating so I get that report back and then I take that percentage and I run what's called a rating, a permanent partial disability rating based upon your age and your occupation. And then we get to that permanent partial disability rating and that the percentage, let's say it's like a 30%, we literally matches up to a number on the state's money chart. And that number, that dollar, that's a dollar number, right? has not changed since 2014. We haven't really increased that number much. So a 30% could equate to something in the neighborhood of, a, I want to say like 30,000. That's how they determine what to award you for your disability. I usually tell my clients, say, you came to your, your employer, you're like a whole pie, like 100%, you know, and then that permanent partial disability rating of 30%, it's like taking that chunk of a piece of pie out of you that's about 30%. So that's what your disability rating is. So basically, uh, I can kind of look up the chart and figure out how much my thumb's worth. Your thumb's worth nothing, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, each body part's worth a little something different. So, uh, yeah. What do you and, do with your thumb all day long anyway? <laughs> yeah. it's uh, In the civil world, it's all negotiable. Yeah. What would you, right. you have, Nick? Oh, no, I was just, yeah, that's exactly right. And that was what my experience was is they looked at the knee and said, oh, your knee's not worth much. <laughs> it actually, actually there's, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I've done this long enough now. Um, I, I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm like, well, meniscus tear, partial meniscus tear. I mean, it literally, when you go through the book and they do this, the American Medical Association, that guide is what those doctors use. And a lot of this is just archaic and a fiction, but we were kind of stuck with these rules. And that's why, you know, I actually am fascinated by reading and it's, it, it actually looks like algebra, which is kind of creepy, but that's what, that's what, how we come up with those percentages. And we fight about them a lot. Like you get a defense attorney on the other side and I, we fight about those, what those ratings are. We actually have what we, um, uh, we call a rater, R-A-T-E-R, -E over at the Workers' Comp Appeals Board that we can send the, the reports over and that person will look at them and determine whether or not it's done correctly. So it's a big deal coming up with the proper percentage. Um, so that's, that's one of the big, the more technical aspects of workers comp. 
you know, I kind of nerd out on it actually. <laughs> well, that's why you do what you do, right? Right. So, uh, right. Nick, I want to say thanks again for sharing your story. And uh, I know you've hashed it uh, around the state at a management school so that managers can learn to to do better for our folks. And I appreciate that. And Laura, I appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about it. And we're going to post uh, some notes uh, in the show notes just for folks. If you need to learn more or you want to reach out, um, we'll put Laura's stuff on there. If you want to shoot her an email and ask her for a reference somewhere in your area or something like that. But uh, I can tell you from knowing Laura, she does uh, probably uh, more work for free than she gets paid helping folks. And so my intent here isn't to take advantage of uh, our relationship, just to point people in the right direction so we can take care of ourselves, get those people back to work that want to go back and the people that can't work anymore to uh, more efficiently uh, take care of yourself and your family as you move on to uh, another career. So... So thank you both uh, for joining. Uh, any last comments? And uh, I'll let you continue on with your day. Well, Marcus, I'm on the board of directors of a statewide organization, California Applicant Attorneys Association. So that means that if anybody has a, a question or wants to talk to an attorney who is most likely, like me, a certified specialist in workers' compensation, I can probably refer them to someone who is actually in their area all the way up and down the state of California. So Perfect. 100% on that. That's fine. Perfect. Okay. And Nick, any last uh, comments before we go? Oh, I just appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my story and hopefully help some people not have to go through my experience. I think, you know, I have a big heart for police and um, the just everything that we go through. And if I can be even a small help in, uh, in my retirement with that, um, I, it's an honor. So thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, buddy. And uh, we look forward to the new Cato website coming out soon. I know you've been working hard for us uh, to get it done. So uh, for those Cato members listening, I appreciate your patience. Uh, we're, we're working hard as a voluntary organization to update our website and get you some uh, more material in a more efficient way. So Yeah, I still want a hostage negotiation class, Marcus. <laughs> Laura likes to argue and she wants to uh, learn more about hostage negotiating. So uh, I guess that's why you're an attorney, my friend. I guess so. <laughs> well, well, thanks again for both of you. I appreciate you being on the podcast. And uh, since I have a good relationship with both of you, we will talk again real soon. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.